As we interact with God's Word this morning, I need a volunteer. It may be worth $5 to you. Are you serious, Danny? Okay. In this bag, I have some yucky-looking stuff. Uh, there's some watermelon in it. There's some cooking oil. There's some butter. There's some pepper in here. You remember what else it was, honey? I'm, I'm not sure. Okay. A little later in the service, we'll give you an opportunity to respond to get the $5 out of it. But, you know, I expect you to open it. You'll have to trust that there's $5 in an envelope in there, and the envelope is protected enough so that the $5 is not yucky. So I, I would claim to be a man of integrity. Do you think I'm a man of integrity that honors my word? Find out after I get my 5 bucks. Find out after you get your 5 bucks. So you're not sure? No, I think you are. I think you are. Okay, you can sit down. We'll give you an opportunity to respond. But whether or not he is willing to open it and go after five bucks, some depends upon how he views me. I realize he's my son, but how he would view me in terms of my character. How we respond to others many times is greatly determined by who we think they are. And as we go through the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, we find that Jesus is clearly communicated as being the Son of God. That's stated in John 1, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In John 1, in verse 11, his father said, This is my Son. You know, that's the Father speaking of Christ. Few people in the gospel of Mark seem to grasp the identity, the character, the being of Christ while he was on this earth. But in Mark 15, 33 through 41, we find the centurion as he is standing in front of the cross as Christ dies. He says, this was the son of God. Let's read Mark chapter 15, 33 through 41 together. Mark 15. Mark chapter 15, 33 through 41. And keep in mind, when we come to this point in Mark's gospel, that Christ has clearly communicated he is the Son of God. He has stood trial before the Sanhedrin. He has been before Pilate. He is on the cross. And verse 33 says, At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi. Lama Shabbat Shalani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, he said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar and put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud voice, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who had stood there in front of Jesus, heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was a son of God. 
Some women were watching from a distance, among them Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and Joes and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. As we think about Mark's gospel, we have a sandwich in Mark's gospel. By that mean, at the beginning of the book, it's clearly stated, Jesus is the Son of God in Mark 1, 1 through 11. Mark states that. God states that. Then we have what we call the meat part of the sandwich, the works, the teachings, the miracles of Jesus. They're the evidence that he is the Son of God. Then we come to the end of the book in chapter 15, 33 through 16, 20. Jesus is the Son of God. It is stated by the centurion. The resurrection would demonstrate that he is the Son of God. His being seen demonstrates that he rose from the dead. And again, communicating that Jesus is the Son of God. Where we pick up in our reading this morning, we find that Jesus is on the cross. He has been mocked. He has been made fun of. And the text says that the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. So he would have been crucified at 9 a.m. At noon, the sixth hour of the day, according to reckoning in that time, we find that darkness comes, and that continues until 3 p.m. when Jesus would have died. During the crucifixion, from the sixth to the ninth hour, there was darkness. Those who lived in ancient times were familiar with accounts of extraordinary occurrences accompanying the death of humans that were considered important. The Rabonic literature would record strange and fantastic accounts of events at the death of famous rabbis, including the appearance of stars at midday, the weeping of statues, lightning, thunder, and even the dividing of the Sea of Tiberias. Likewise, at least two Roman writers record that at the death of Julius Caesar, a comet shone for seven successive days. And these events seem to be eulogizing someone who has passed away. But the darkness in Mark's gospel is not a eulogy to Jesus and who he was. But it seems to be ominous and evil, like the plague of darkness over Egypt when Egypt was judged during the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Or the darkness of chaos before Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2 says there was darkness over the face of the deep. The darkness at the crucifixion cannot be well accounted for by natural phenomena. A solar eclipse do not occur when the moon is at full as it was at Passover. Nor was it a dust storm because it would have been during spring when it is normally wet. According to, dark, according to Mark, the darkness at the crucifixion portrays an eschatological judgment of God. As in Amos 8 and verse 9, in that day declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. 
This darkness, says, was over the whole land. It seems like it would have involved the entire world. As you think about Christ and the cross, we think about judgment of sin. We think about Christ becoming a curse. We think about Christ taking judgment upon himself. One writer says, wave after wave of the world's sin was poured over Christ's sinless soul. Again and again during those three hours, his soul recoiled and convulsed at all the lies of civilization, the murders of a thousand killing fields, the whorings of the world's armies, the noxious brew of hatred, jealousies, and pride, cutting words, unforgiveness, and bitterness. He became a curse. Galatians 3 and verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. In the darkness of the cross's night, Jesus was alone. His separation was not just felt. It was year or true. Think about the eternity past of the union, the oneness between God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And while he is on the cross, he later says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That oneness was broken. I think that's hard for us to grasp, maybe. But in eternity past, we can't even fathom eternity. Now we have a time period where that fellowship, that union between Christ and his Father was broken. Psalm 22 ties in where the psalmist speaks of being forsaken. Isaiah 53 speaks of Christ and his suffering on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, again ties in because he became a curse, as does Galatians 3 and verse 13, which I quoted earlier. 1 Peter 1, or 1 Peter 2, rather, in verse 24, speaks about the fact that when Christ was going through his trial and his crucifixion, that he entrusted himself to his father. What does he cry while he is on the cross? <clears throat> my God. My God. Why have you forsaken me? That's what it means. But he would have cried, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God. My God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is coming to the point where he is about to finish his suffering. He's going to die in obedience to his Father. His being on the cross was the Father's will. His suffering was the Father's will. His death was the Father's will. 
ponder that, not only this morning, but in days to come. Coming to this earth, being separated from his father for a period of time, the suffering, the trials, and so on, we're all part of God's will for his son. Jesus did not die an ordinary death by crucifixion. Jesus gave his life. He didn't die unconscious. He didn't die feebly. He was conscious to his last breath. And the other, one of the other Gospels records that he would have said, it is finished. And then he died. And when he said, it is finished, as recorded in one of the other Gospels, he had finished his mission. It has been, and it forever will be finished. And Lord willing, next Sunday, we will look at what does it mean when Jesus said it is finished? What was finished? So the Father forsook him, and he then died. But notice in verse 35, before he actually passed away, after he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those standing near heard this. They said, listen, he's calling Elijah. So what do they do? They fill a sponge with vinegar, put it on a stick, and offer it to Jesus to drink. They still don't get who Christ is because they say, now let him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. And we find that Jesus, with a loud cry, breathed his last. Now, if that were the end of the story, it wouldn't be very good. But it's interesting that in verse 28, two events happen. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That is when Jesus breathed his last. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus, heard his cry, and saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. The veil in the temple being torn. Remember, you have in the Old Testament, you have the Holy of Holies, where the high priest would go in once a year. You have the holy place, where ministry would take place on a daily basis. But into the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God... Only the high priest could go. Now this veil is being torn in two. And with that thought in mind, let's go to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. What is taking place with death? That is the death of Christ. Hebrews 10. And Hebrews 9 and 10 talks about again. Christ and his death, his once for all death. In Hebrews 10 and verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, the very presence of God in the Old Testament, where the high priest went once a year, since we have this confidence by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. 
before the cross, priest would minister on behalf of believers, the Jews. The high priest once a year would go into the Holy of Holies. Christ, through his death, becomes the high priest. Believers become priests. So there is no longer that need for individuals not to be able to go into the Holy of Holies. They now have the freedom to go before God into God's very presence because the temple veil has been torn. And seek to see that as a distinct sign that God is honoring Christ and what he has done. The centurion says, surely this was the son of God. The centurion would have seen other crucifixions. Remember, as we discussed several weeks ago, that thousands of people would have been crucified over time by the Romans. The centurion probably saw numerous other crucifixions. But there's something different. And he says, surely this man was the Son of God. The text doesn't say what he saw, but he came to realize that Christ was the Son of God. The first time in the Gospel of Mark where a human is grasping the true identity of Jesus Christ and stating it. Interesting that it's coming from what we would call a Gentile. Jesus was Jewish, but he was crucified ultimately because the Jews wanted him crucified. But here is a Roman centurion. Surely this was the Son of God. Sir and Tiffany's, as you look at Mark's gospel, We find the witness of Jesus before the Sanhedrin when he clearly states, I am the son of the blessed one. And what happens? There's mockery. There's maltreatment of the Sanhedrin. The Jews are making fun of him. Peter denies even knowing him. When he's before Pilate in chapter 15, verses 2 through 5, what happens? There's shouts from the crowd for his death and mockery and maltreatment of the soldiers. In the crucifixion of Christ, in chapter 15, 21 through 26, we find again there's mockery from the bystanders. Now Jesus comes to the end of his life at his death. What happens? The confession of the centurion that this is the Son of God. The Jews didn't get it. Crucify him. Pilate and people there didn't get it. They mocked him. They mistreated him. He's on the cross. And what happens? They heaped insults on him. And as he dies, the centurion comes to the conclusion that Christ was the Son of God. Well, Jesus is alive. Humanity willed his death. 
Only in his death can humanity see him as the way to life. While Jesus is alive, humanity wills his death. Only in his death can humanity see him as the way to life. The death of Jesus on the cross is thus not a defeat, but the consummation of his mission and the climatic revelation of his identity as the Son of God. Now I want us to stop and think in terms of the life of Christ, in terms of the Roman church to whom Mark was probably writing, that it is in rejection, it is in persecution, it is in suffering, it is in death that Christ is seen for who he is. It is in the persecution, the rejection, and the death of Roman believers that they were seen for who they are, as genuine and real. And think about that in life today. That it is in suffering, it is in death, it is in persecution, it is in rejection, it is in misunderstanding, as we continue to follow Christ, that our faith is shown to be genuine. What Christ experienced, others are experiencing. You go back to the early church as people were persecuted for their faith in Christ. People came to Christ. You look at countries today where persecution is taking place, where believers in Christ are being killed. It becomes a testimony. This faith in Christ, this Christ that these people follow, must be genuine, otherwise they wouldn't be willing to die. In school or on the job, as you live your life, you work hard as unto God, and you think and respond in a Christ-honoring manner, if you face some rejection or misunderstanding, you're just going on for God and humbly continuing to obey becomes a testimony that the one who died on the cross is who he claimed to be. He is the Son of God. If we're not careful in 21st century America, we say we need this program. We need this style of worship. We need this style of music. We need this book. We need this seminar if we're going to attract people and bring them to Christ. Those things may be fine. But it isn't a greater testimony when someone says, I've been rejected, but I'm going to continue to walk with Christ because I'm convinced he is the Son of God. The one who will walk away from an opportunity to get into trouble with some other kids. And the other kids say, oh, who do you think you are? And begin to make fun of them. And then the teenager just continues to love God and to walk with God. The saints in China today who will continue to worship God, continue to pursue worship, getting together, even if it means they may end up in prison. Demonstration of the genuineness of Christ. 
I think I mentioned this one time in the past. Someone asked, how are things going at Roaring Brook? And I said, we're dying well. This person just kind of looked at me. You're dying well. I said, yeah. We've had some people die in the last couple of years. They loved God. They died well. They didn't forsake God. And we ministered as a body. We cared for them. We're dying well. That's a testimony that we follow Christ. But also suffering well. Whether it be for persecution or just physical trials, going through difficulty and continuing to love God and stand for God. Because you're convinced that Christ is who he claimed to be. See, the cross is not something that is held up as a good symbol in the culture in which the cross took place. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For those who lived in the time of Christ and years to follow, suffering was not a sign of God's presence or a channel of redemption, but a categorical refutation of divine election agency. Anyone who went to the cross was not considered good. It's bad. Those who suffered, that's not a good thing. Martin Hengel's conclusion is verified by all available evidence, and I quote, A crucified Messiah, Son of God, must have seemed a contradiction in terms to anyone. Jews, Greek, Roman, or barbarian asked to believe such a claim, and it will certainly have been thought offensive and foolish. Cross was considered foolish. Suffering on a cross was foolishness. It was not a sign of divine blessing. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and notice verse 27, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are that no one be boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, let him who boast, or therefore is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Boast in the cross, boast in suffering, because it's through suffering, it's through the cross that we find the wisdom of God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Go back to verse 21 of 1 Corinthians. For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demanded a miraculous miraculous signs. Greeks looked for wisdom But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. The cross was not something people said, Ah, Christ must have his Father's blessing. 
No, it was seen as something different. So suffering of Christ, the death of Christ, results in it being finished, as one of the Gospels say. That is, God's work was finished. We don't need to resort to all kinds of things to reach people with the gospel. Some of them may be good tools. But you and me, the Roman believers to whom Mark was writing, just day by day, living in a deep sensitivity to God. In the midst of sufferings of life, in the midst of rejection, in the midst of the trials of life as well as the joys of life, just humbly responding to God. Living in a deep sensitivity to him because of the cross. I think sometimes in our country, we have come to trust in so many things that really are not where God is at. We think about reaching on believers and we say, well, let's plan this, let's plan that, let's plan the next thing. And a host of items may be good. But a day-by-day humble obedience to God seems to be God's primary method as we just live yielded to him. Well, a host of things may be done, which may be fine. But I would pose a question. How many self-help books do you know how to deal with worry, how to deal with fear, how to deal with a broken marriage, how to deal with a broken heart, how to deal with the loneliness are available in Christian America. Dozens and dozens. How many books do you know that are written on how to live godly in persecution? I'm just saying our mindset, if we're not careful, we miss the cross. And in no way am I belittling concerts that may be available in America. I'm not belittling them in any any way. But people will pay money to go to hear musicians. And that is fine. Are we willing to pay money to go and hear how to live godly in persecution? You know, What do we value? And I'm not belittling music in any way. Oh, yeah. They're going to have a group of persecuted Christians from China and Vietnam, and they're going to be speaking up at the arena. It costs 40 bucks a person to get in. Oh, yeah, I can't wait. I want to go. I got 40 bucks. You want to go? I'll give you 40. You see where I'm coming from? If we're not careful, we miss the cross and what God values. The crucifixion of Christ involved judgment. That is judgment carried by Jesus. The death of Christ marked the once for all. It is finished. 
The curtain torn in the temple means that freedom for believers in Christ to come into God's presence. That is the most holy place. See the crucifixion, his death, and how he died as being evidence he is the Son of God. In our lives, let's reject. Let's reflect, rather, the being of Christ by following him for who he is. Is our passion to follow Jesus no matter what? It is finished. And the centurion was one who recognized Jesus as being the Son of God. He grasped his character. He grasped his identity. We're not going to have Danny do this right now. He can do that after church. But if he is willing to come up here and open this and pull it out, he is saying something. He's saying, I believe that my dad... The man of integrity and what he says is true. His belief that I am a man of integrity is shown in his action. By the way, Danny, there's some gloves here too you can put on. There is five dollars in there. If you want to watch him open it later, fine. Mark is part of what he is saying to the Roman believers. I want you to be convinced that Jesus is the Son of God and as a Son of God, follow Him. Obey Him. Be willing to die for Him. Be willing to suffer for Him. Remain faithful through the ups and downs of daily life. Are you convinced Christ is the Son of God? Have you come to faith in Him? If not, why not today? If you come to faith in Christ... Are you living as though he's the son of God? Being willing to act on light of what is revealed.